Radio Richard. Hi, I'm Richard Niles, and welcome to Radio Richard. Pete Waterman produced and co-wrote over 200 hit singles in the 1980s. While most critics dismissed the music as worthless, the public, who bought many million records, and Pete Waterman's bank manager knew the exact worth of it. Was the music formulaic? Yes, but that could be said for much of pop. Was it tuneful and danceable? Absolutely. Did it accurately reflect the dress-up-and-dance, showing-out, loads-of-money spirit of the 1980s? Oh, yes, indeed. The production team of Stock, Aitken, and Waterman used the new technology of the 1980s to make a string of contagious hits from many pop artists, including Kylie Minogue, I Should Be So Lucky, Better the Devil You Know, Jason Donovan, Mel and Kim, Showing Out, Respectable, Bananarama, Love in the First Degree, I'm Your Venus, and Rick Astley. Astley's warm baritone voice gave Stockaken and Waterman rare transatlantic success, with two number ones in America, including Never Gonna Give You Up. So here's the first part of my interview with the man who said he had Woolworth's ears, Pete Waterman. Well, I, you know, I was brought up, which is, which is bizarre when you think what my career is, with a 78 uh, gramophone that the most had burnt out before the Second World War and the whole of the early 50s. I, I had to spin it round with my finger, you know, because they used to have the, the, the needle, as it was in those days. And, you know, sure. listening to Deanna Durbin and Bing Crosby records with my finger, you know, and I still think back, how the hell did I, I get to love music so much <laughs> when literally I had to spin it round at 78, you know. Well. That's why you made a record. Later. Well, I spent I spent hours like that, you know, because um, we didn't, you know, we didn't have a. I don't suppose, you know, we have the radio, so record player or gramophone wasn't that important, but it was to me, and you know, I worked out to spin these records at seventy eight. Now, if you think about it, I didn't think about it before, but you're a kid, you've never heard these songs before, yet I could work out what seventy eight RPM was. Now, you know, my dad was a big Deanna Durbin fanatic. Now, you know, did I know who Deanna Durbin was? Probably not, but I could work out mm. the pitch of those records to keep them going at 78 that my dad <laughs> thought they sounded great. Well, you had the magic finger. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, well, I, and, of course, when we started DJing, there were no headphones, so I learned to feel the groove with my finger. Mm. And I, I, I learned to spot bass lines with, my, with the, the reverb on my finger through the stylus. And that's what we used to do. And, and it's interesting when people listen to my record collection for the co because the first five seconds of every single I've got are scratched because of where I've done the uh -huh. physical feel in the bass line. Melody is what drives you nuts. You walk away and you're still whistling it three hours, three days or three weeks later. And it's that, what, where did I, what is this? To me, you know, the, the melody is the most underestimated part of music. It really is. People... Um, talk about great writers uh, and they talk about lyrics and they talk about guitars and they talk about bass lines and drums and sax solos and great vocals but they can only be great if they've got a melody to be great on and it is very interesting that some of the greatest records we've come to love actually if you talk to the producers and the writers they they found it very difficult to get the artist to actually stick to the melody that they'd, they'd written um, I mean, you know, I know that so often, you, you know, the, the melody that we'd written is not the melody that the singer sung. Now, then, 
in some cases they improved it beyond what we, we thought capable of. Rick Astley and Donna Summer particularly were singers that could take your melody and interpret it in their own style and turn it into something else. Where Edwin Starr, for instance, would not stick to your melody. No matter how good your melody was, he wouldn't sing it. He insisted totally on singing his own melody. And um, as much as uh, Edwin had a phenomenal voice, which he did, it was irrelevant to you as a, as a songwriter when, you know, he's not singing your melody. It's, it's just like, well, you know, this is a performance, it's not a song. Exactly. Uh, you know, and if you buy an Edwin Starr record, you're buying it because of Edwin Starr, not because of the melody. And no matter how we talked to him and tried to explain to him that when you put melody with performance, as in Marvin Gaye, you got classic records. When you just put performance and no melody, you just got classic performances, but they didn't got to be classic records. Exactly. I, uh, Steve Lipson told me a great story about being in the studio with Whitney Houston. And he, and he said uh, she came in, two hours late, slapped her bag down, and uh, sang the song, and then walked. was ready to walk out. And he said, uh, excuse me, Miss, Miss Houston, would you mind coming back? And she said, listen, I just gave you everything. What more could you possibly want? And he said, as only Steve Lipson can, uh, the melody, Miss Houston. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the point is, I think that it's well documented. You wouldn't get away with that with me. I wouldn't take Whitney Houston into the studio. That's, that's not what I do. Um, and... You know, I am the one that told Paul McCartney, no, it's not good enough, let's, let's go again. You know, what do you mean it's not good enough? It's just not good enough. Wait, wait a minute, I've just... No, no, you've sung it in tune, but there's no liveliness in it. You know, and I remember Linda, bless her heart, ringing me and went, you're the only guy that's ever told Paul to go back in the studio and do it properly. And he came home raving about that you dared to tell him, you know, you wanted some flat notes. He couldn't believe you wanted some, some ragged performance in there. Uh, no, I said, what I wanted was emotion. It's an emotional melody, and I want his voice to reflect the emotion of the melody. It's, a, you know, it's, about, it's, it's about pathos. It's about hurt. It's about people in tragedy. You can't sing a song about tragedy without being tragic. It's like performing Macbeth as a comedy. It just doesn't work. You know, that's... And that's what the melody is. The melody is the pathos. It is the love. It's the hate. It's the happy. It's the sad. It's not the lyric that tells you the story. It's the melody that gives the story the, the platform which enables you to do that. Mm. You know, happy birthday is a happy tune. You couldn't play it at a funeral and expect people to cry because they wouldn't. They'd laugh. <laughs> that's great. Uh let me let me then backtrack just a little on that uh, to go back to your your days as a DJ. You were choosing records. Now, obviously, you you said earlier that certain melodies grabbed you and certain didn't. Can you give me kind of an example of either a record that you rejected or a reason that you would say, no, I'm going to play that one instead of that one? Well, my my background is church music. I mean, choral church, British or English choral, uh, choral church, more than anything, and and uh, mid European choral works uh, which is quintessential melody I mean that's what it is so when I was um, DJing I would I would listen to that not knowing it. I mean I'm not going to say that I sat there and thought church music people going to church 
Brahms lullaby. Uh, this is as close as Brahms lullaby gets in 1960. But it was, it was always obvious to me, right from 58 onwards with rock and roll records, that some records were about performance and some records were about the melody. And it was to me, when you saw Elvis Presley singing melody and the melody sold bigger than the rock and roll records, that I suddenly worked out that the old adage is, you know, it's the, the whistling postman, it's not about the blue suede shoes, it's about whether the postman whistles love me tender going down the footpath. And, and that didn't, I guess, that was quite obvious to me. And even with the Motown records that I was playing, where if you take Please Mr Postman, which I, I happen to think is one of my favourite records, didn't have the lyric, it didn't have the melody of Baby Love. Baby Love had a phenomenal, phenomenal melody. Da, 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 where, where Mr. Postman goes, wait, oh yes, wait a minute, Mr. Postman. It doesn't have the same melodic context. And in fact, the Beatles version of that is far more melodic, actually, than the Marvelettes, which is very interesting. Um, and I guess the Marvelettes is more of a performance, particularly a teenage performance, where the Beatles is far more of an angst uh, melody performance again because they've transposed it instead of piano they're using sort of guitars they've simplified the chords slightly um, and I think that that was very obvious to me very early now you know I can be sitting here as a doctor of music now and say why well, I did but I didn't know at the time mm. but I was able to say to myself that one works that one doesn't now I also learned very early that certain performances were as important as the melody. So there were certain records that I heard at that period where I knew that the song wasn't that great, but the idea of the song and, and, and the actual, you know, the, the melody along with the performance were... I mean, Rockin' Robin, I always remember playing Rockin' Robin, and, and uh, Tossin' and Eternity, these are all rock and roll records or R&B records really early, but... These records, I couldn't sleep at all last night. Din, 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 din. The, the melody's not great, but the intensity of the melody and the, the, the hard-cutting lyric instantly made your ear go, oh, what's this? Uh, and so I was able to sort of judge, I guess, quite quickly when the melody was all of the song and when the melody was only part of the song. And I guess I was able to judge quite quickly of when the balance was right. Because, you see, one of the problems with melody, the melody can swamp the song. I mean, some songs are all melody, and they become saccharine. They become so sweet that there's, there's no intensity. So you've, you, you, you know, you've got to be slightly worried about that as well. And that's what I say. So certain, particularly when I'm talking about 5962, you weren't far off, you know... Um, Sugar, you know, in, in melodies. I mean, you had people in Britain like Matt Monroe. Um, probably Britain's answer to Frank Sinatra, but with a lot more sugar. I mean, the melodies were far more saccharine than than the Nelson Riddle arrangements. Um, and they worked. And then, you, of course, the great movie at the time was Sound of Music, which is probably as pure melody-wise as you're probably going to get that late on. I mean, that sound of music was a hit after Melody had become quite unfashionable. I mean, it, that, I guess, 
in itself shows you how great melody is because that's all about melody it's all simple Jewish fabulous mid-European uh, melody that's what it is it's, I mean it's, it's quite unbelievable uh, forging ahead a little bit now uh, can you give us an example of the Stock Aiken Waterman methodology. When you started putting that together, what was your what was your way of working? Where where did you start? What was the next stage? If you can do a little of that, it would be very well, instructive. Uh, you know, the great thing with Mike, Matt, and I, I'm the oldest, and and I, of course I started in in 1958. So Mike's five years younger than me, and Matt's five years younger than him. So probably we spanned the most important musical genres, you know, from 1960 to 1970. So we've probably got between us five years or ten years of experience that span 30 years, which is, you know, as a songwriter, you've got, you know, Matt with modern songs, Mike with 60s songs and me with 40s, 50s songs. So you've probably got three songwriters that were dipping into the well, uh, you know, of... I don't know, 10,000, 15,000 melodies. The one thing that Mike and I had in common was the Beatles. We both idolised Lennon-McCartney songs. And I brought to the party the Motown side, um, the R&B side. um, And so between the two of us, we wanted to make Beatle Motown records. Uh, And that in itself sets you the melody. That sets where you're at. We're both choir boys, both Mike and I were both choir boys. So we both got church music as our, as our background. So no matter what we wrote, we found out that it was the melody that was the passionate thing to us. So even, I mean, we would know within 20 minutes of sitting down um, whether a song was melody, melodically would work. And that was probably because... I, I was too simple, you know. I, you know, I'd write a very simple melody, very, very simple. So if you take "Never Gonna Give You Up," I started that song myself in the car with Rick Astley. Um, when Mike heard it, I mean, it, it was it was probably in truth banal. I mean, it, you know, it was too simple. Uh, the lyric was there and an idea was there, but what Mike did was then put the finesse on it. And so then when uh, Matt and Mike then made it work properly, I mean, you know, I'm C, F and G and A minor and D seventh if you're lucky. I mean, there'll never be a B minor. There certainly wouldn't be a flat in there. Where, you know, that's the opposite from what Matt and Mike would do. What Matt and Mike would do particularly would work out musically where to support the song with probably chords that no other English writers use. I mean, we use very sophisticated chords... I mean, people think that Stock Aitken Waterman songs are quite simple. In fact, they're not. Mm. I remember Greg Fillingains once saying to me, Christ, you guys write the most complicated chords I've ever seen in my life. Why? Why write a C flat seventh when a, a C would have done? You know, C minor flat and fourth. What the hell's that be? You know, you could have played C seventh. It's exactly the same chord. No, it's not actually, Greg, because the bass note is different. And it's the bass note that we want to carry it through. Um, and... Other songs that we, we, we did, we learnt to pedal. And one of the, the, the problems uh, with melody is that the melody becomes too dominant. And melody dates records because, 
you know, melodies coming in out of style, a bit like Sergeant Pepper, you know. Mm. Um, if you want a sort of groove record, the bass has got to stay pretty solid. So you've got to work out how to pedal the bass against the chords because both in Mike's opinion, uh, Matt's and mine, you could not uh, do away with the melody. The melody was absolutely the thing that had to work. Um, and we always knew when it did, by the way. You know, you, could, you, just, you just knew instinctively, that's it, because they always do the same thing. You know, they always do what you expect them to do. Now, you know, writing a song that you expect it to do what you know it's going to do, but not sound exactly like the one you wrote two days earlier, mm. is very difficult. Mm. Um, but we used to approach it always with a title. We always, you know, somebody come up with a title, and a, an idea for a lyric, and then literally we would have in uh, our brains seven or eight chord sequences that we liked uh, and we'd play around with those chord sequences uh, until they sounded in a rough sort of form that we wanted and then literally we'd put a melody on top. You, you talked about uh, the aspect of what Matt and Mike would do and of course because my background as you know is as an arranger yeah. uh, and I also know that you're a great lover of Motown and Philly, yeah. and I've spoken to a lot of those those arrangers too. And so it'd be kind of interesting to hear you talk a little bit about well, that aspect of supporting the melody with how the, how an arrangement uh, can help well, yeah, a yeah, melody. Yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, yeah, you've, uh, I mean, I'd forgotten about Philadelphia, and I shouldn't because that's the most influential part about records. Because the one thing we did that was different, we actually married Beatles, Motown, and everybody forgets, but Philadelphia. Mm-hmm because my passion for Philly, and I spent a lot of time with uh, Tom Bell, Mm. it was what we did on the Rick Astley records was we actually sort of made pseudo-Philly records. It's the truth. Absolutely. We added the Tom Bell sweetness and the the Tom Bell chords and the Gamble and Huff chords. Now, um, I mean, it is interesting if you play Nothing's Going to Stop Us Now and Never Going to Give You Up. They are very similar. Now, and I can, I can assure you, that was not intentional, okay? But the truth is, the chords are completely different. And it was very interesting when I went to Wembley and Rick Astley did Never Gonna Give You Up and then went straight into Nothing's Gonna... You know, um, the OJ song. And I tried to work out why he did it. And they went, well, it, you, it's the same song. And, of course, it's not the same song. And we looked at the chords and they're not the same chords. But, of course, what they had picked up on, they picked up on the Tom Bell-type arrangement, you know, the floaty piano, the string lines that support the melody. Um, and we always have what we... I mean, we, uh, we use very unaffectionate terms for what we do. Um, we have ricky-ticky, and we have warm length and short length. And, of course, warm length is strings and um, pads, short length is staccato bits... And we always have ricky-ticky, which to us ricky-ticky is percussion. And we have a thing called jivvy. And we always have jivvy. And the, and the jivvy is there to do that. It's to jivvy it along. <laughs> so you always have a little sequencer and they go tick 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 to keep the record uh, moving. But it's, a, it's the warm length of the strings that always in our records worked. All our records were supported by melody. So... Even if the singer wasn't the greatest singer in the world, you were believed because you heard an orchestra playing at the background. Uh, and I remember working uh, in New York on Banana Rama Records, 
with you know the Motown arrangers and they just couldn't believe I wanted so much melody. I mean, they went, man, this is old-fashioned. I went, hey, this is what we do. You know, you've got to support the singer. The singer's important, but even if you don't put the strings up so loud that anybody can hear them, you don't have the strings in there. You don't have the counter-melody. You've got to have a counter-melody. Mm. You've got to keep bringing the, the ear back to the fact... See, I'm a big Wagner fan, right, OK? And Wagner does it better than anybody else, because... I learned very early on in life that what Wagner does is brilliant with melody. It's great. He, he goes off on these rambling uh, melodies that mean absolutely nothing if you don't understand German, right? But then, just when you're getting bored, he brings you back to the melody, right? And he socks you with another amazing little folk song that you go, wow, that's fantastic. Then he rambles on for another ten minutes and then brings you back with another little tune. And I, you know, and I worked out very early on that as long as you bring the person back to the melody they love they will forgive you the 20 minutes in between the tracks so when you were making a 10 track album you know we used to stack the first four tracks with hits then pad the next four tracks out and then it will stick up the best track last <laughs> so they'd have to play all the way through and it was that very much that wagner They'll put up with a bit, but you've got to hit them with a hit every now and again. And it's the same thing with a melody, you know. Do you, sometimes you'd start with a hook, sometimes you wouldn't. You know, quite often we'd start, and, you know, we used to use the, very, the trick of half a tone up and, and to, you know, lift it into the chorus. But, of course, everybody thinks all our songs did that. They don't all do that at all. But um, it's a standard trick. And it works every single time. But it isn't easy to achieve without making it sound silly. And I always remember Spitting Image Puppets uh, doing us. And that was great, because what they did was they completely took it to the ultimate and changed key all over the place, <laughs> you know, just to overemphasise the whole thing of, of, of the way we changed key. But, of course, most people, if they heard our song, wouldn't spot the changes of key. It wasn't there to say, oh, they've changed key. It was there to give you a, mel a melodic effect. Um, I think they say, you know, a lot of people have said the whole deal with making records or creating any kind of art is to make the technical side of it in invisible, which is exactly what you did. Oh, and, I th and, and that was very, very... Um, right from the very beginning, I remember the first time I ever met uh, Matt and Mike, I remember the very first conversation I'd had. I had been working in uh, Los Angeles with Stevie Wonder, and I came back, so I was very fresh from working with Stevie Wonder, uh, you know, uh, who's a genius. And I said, you know, the thing with Stevie Wonder's records are they are beautifully simply but complicatedly made. So your ear doesn't see it as complicated. He pick, you know, it sounds simple, but of course it's not. It's layered very cleverly by a very talented man who just happens to drop this melody out by singing like an angel and everybody thinks that they can sing like him. And of course the truth is you can't. It is Stevie Wonder, and, you know, he's the only one can sing it. But he puts all the little pieces in place to kid your ears that it's simple. And they're not. I mean, it's, his songs are very complicated. You know, and so I said to Matt and Mike, right at the very beginning, we have to make very simple records, but they cannot be simple. They cannot be simple melodies. We can't say June soon and loon, and the melodies cannot go la 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 la. It can't do that. If we do that, it will not work because people will 
see that you haven't done your homework. And again, going back to that Philly thing, you know, with the Tom Bell, you have to support the singer. You must not let the singer be exposed and you must put joy in the record. Now, the joy must come from the arrangement. It doesn't have to be a big orchestra every time and that's why we call it warm length uh, because sometimes it was a pad. It was a synthesizer pad that, that did like a string section but it wasn't so much as, as Bowen, it was just a pad. But it creates like um, a cloud effect that allows the, the singer to be supported and not exposed. Now, some, some singers, of course, you can expose. You know, you drop the whole track out and let the guy perform on his own, and everybody goes, wow, he sounds fantastic, because people love singing, um, you know, a cappella. The truth is, of course, if you sing a cappella, you have no tune whether they're in tune, in tune or out tune. You have no idea at all. I mean, everybody can sing great a cappella. It sounds great. And, you know, people go, wow, it's amazing. You get the guy to sing with a piano, and he's completely out of tune. He doesn't know how to sing. Um, so the string arrangements for us were always... And, you know, Matt and Mike knew me so well, because at the end of the day, you know, one guy who's not in the studio all the time has got to make a decision, and I was that guy. They knew me so well, they knew that they had to do certain things. And their game was to get those certain things past me without spotting them, right? Because they knew I wouldn't allow the record to go out if it didn't do certain things. And they... Obviously, you know, as writers, producers, you don't want to do the same thing every time. So they're changing how that works. So we'd use a guitar, for instance, uh, you know, with, with reverb on or, or with the, you know, with those machines that came out from the kid from Boston. You remember he had that chorus effect. Mm-hmm. We would use that instead of a pad because it created the same sort of thing. But always they were pads to support, you know, the thing. I always remember Hazel Dean one of the, the songs we didn't write and um, I heard the song and Matt d- did this guitar riff through, through the, you know, the Boston chorus effect and that, that was it the melody was so strong that's all it needed you know, it, it just needed that it didn't need much else because you know, if there's 100% I believe your ears, your ears have to hear 100% now is that 100% of the strings? Is it 60% strings, 60%, uh, 40% voice? Is it 20% voice, 10% drums, 30% guitar? You can mix that 100%, but you can't get more than 100%. Mm. And you, like me, have been in the studio where the drummer wants to hear the drums at 100%, mm. the singer wants to hear the singer at 100%, mm. of course the guitarist insists he hears the guitar at 100%, and of course the truth is you can't do that. You've only got 100%. Well, that's why you need someone... Yeah. like yourself with an overview that can yeah. say, okay... It gets difficult, though, and you don't get light for it for saying to the singer, that's enough lead voice. To me, always, the singer was 62 to 64% of the record. Always. Yeah. The drums were never in, in, in my... Um, the bass drum was probably 40% of the drum section, but the drum section was never more than 20% of the record. And, you know, we did like big bass drums... And we hated snare drums. I mean, you did because the snare drum, of course, on the sort of records we made, actually stopped the beat from working. Mm-hmm. Where you've got a four on the floor, you you can drive it. Where if you're sticking the, the snare on the back beat, it suddenly becomes a completely different sort of record. Um, so you, you're sort of playing with um, different size snares to make the record work in a particular way. To us, when when we miss the melody, and 
we made a, a good record. It didn't work for us. It just didn't work. Although some people raved about some of the records we made. You know, people say to me, you know, that record's the best record you ever made. Um, probably technically as a record and production, yeah, maybe. Um, to me, some of the best records we made are things like Banana Rama, Love in the First Degree, because to me they were perfect pop records. They do everything that Motown, the Beatles and Philly ever did. Um, all be probably a bit more camp than anybody they've ever <laughs> been before, but um, that's what we did. But it, it's, um, to us, uh, I've been banging on about this for 40 years, I know, you know, people look at you going out. It's about the melody. Mm. It's always about the melody. It's not about anything else. The li lyric comes second. That, that, if the lyric is that important, like I heard it through the grapevine, then the melody is good enough for you not listen to melody. It's that one piece of that record, dun 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 dun, dun. and that 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 French horn. Bet you would I mean, that is it. Yeah. That's what the melody has delivered. That that French horn hits that note, and you go, whoa. Now I've heard heard it through the grapevine by five different artists when I worked at Motown yeah. that did not work, and they did not work because they didn't have the French horn mm. pinning down that one note. Yeah. Because if you listen to Gladys Knight's version of I Heard It Through the Grapevine, you'll see exactly where they stole it from, mm. which is Say a Little Prayer, because yeah. that's what it is. It's Say a Little Prayer. It's just that um, when you try and do it like Say a Little Prayer, the melody doesn't work, because, again, Say a Little Prayer is one of those magic Hal David Burt Bacharach mm. songs where it does work. You know, if you're going to try and steal something, well, if you steal the crown jewels, but you leave the diamond in the crown, you've only got the gold, and you need the diamond, because Say a Little Prayer is the diamond, the gold, and the sapphire. Heard it through the grapevine without uh, Norman Whitfield was just the gold. What Norman Whitfield added with his arrangement, mm. he added the diamonds, the sapphires, and they were as big as the crown jewels where the original writers had nicked it from, which is, you know, again, that was because I knew the history of that song, I knew how Barry Gordy loved that song, I watched him try that with different artists, and I watched over a five-year period how that went from Say a Little Prayer so I heard it through the grapevine, which is one of my all-time favourite records, because it does what the melody says it does on the tin. It kills you. <laughs>